and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. We are here once more with another hour of geeky news, views, I was going to say chat, but I'm talking to myself again, so not really, and, um, you know, stuff. And unusually, we're going to start with comics. I normally put the comics recommendations at the end of the show. There's something out this week that's got me even more excited about comics than normal. Now, I am normally quite excited about comics. Comics is pretty much what I do. Uh, it's been the overwhelming influence in my life since I was a teenager, and, um, you know, I'm 50 now, so that's a pretty big thing. But every so often, something comes along that overshadows everything else in the world of comics. I've actually got two things this week, um, but one of them is an actual comic. One of them is a thing that's happening in the world of comics. So I'll leave the thing that's actually happening in the world of comics for later, and we're going to get straight in to our comics of the week. Because what has to be one of the most eagerly awaited comics for several years, finally hits the racks this week. And you kind of need a bit of background to understand how exciting this is. But get the headline out of the way. Saga issue 55 is out. I repeat, Saga issue 55 is out. Now, for a lot of you, that's going to elicit a bit of a shrug. Because, and, well, here's the thing. Saga has been, for some time now, the best comic available. I say this objectively. Uh, this is not just my opinion. It is my opinion, but it's not just my opinion. Um, as you know, I run a comic shop in Harrogate, and Saga is the only thing that everyone who's ever worked there agrees on. We all agree it is the best comic there's ever been. Now, that's a big claim. So... Let me try and explain what Saga is. It's difficult because it's actually genuinely quite hard to explain what Saga is whilst doing it justice. But let's have a go, shall we? I think the elevator pitch for Star Wars uh, is the one that Ian, who used to be a member of staff at Destination Venus, came up with. Uh, he described it as Romeo and Juliet smashes into Star Wars with a dirty mind and a filthy mouth. And that's a start. That is a start. I, I would certainly say that Saga is very definitely not particularly safe for work. You probably don't want to read it on the bus in case the person sitting behind you thinks you're a weirdo. And um, it is one of those comics that is very definitely not for kids. We'll get into why as we talk about what it's about. but. What is it about? Well, it's a massive sweeping space opera, effectively. And we follow a family through their adventures as they try and escape their respective governments. You see, the story starts right at the beginning with the birth of... I was going to say she was the central character. She isn't really, but she is the narrator. So we start with the birth of Hazel. And honestly... The first few pages of issue one of Saga are um, quite graphic scenes of childbirth. No punches are pulled. And Hazel then goes on to tell us about her life. Because Hazel is quite an extraordinary little girl and her family is quite an extraordinary family. You see, her mother, Alana, is from a planet called Landfall. Her father, Marco, is from a moon 
which orbits landfall, called Wreath. Wreath and landfall have been at war for as long as literally anyone can remember. And that war has now spilled out across the entire galaxy. Everybody, everywhere, is on one side or the other, or desperately playing both sides against the, the other as they try and stay neutral. But nobody in the galaxy is unaffected by the Wreath Landfall War. Against that backdrop, Alana and Marco meet. Alana is a prison guard. Marco is a prisoner of war. They fall in love. I can't tell you why, because that's covered, and I don't want any spoilers for Saga at all. They fall in love, and she busts him out. They go on the run. Hazel is born as a result of their relationship. Now, this is problematic. First of all, Arlana is regarded by the Landfall authorities as a deserter. Marco is regarded by the Rethian authorities as a deserter. Hazel is regarded by both governments as an abomination who should not exist, because both governments insist that their respective species are not genetically compatible. You see, the Landfallians are um, all about science, and they have wings, and they can fly. The Rethians have horns. They're not about science, they're about magic. The two things should not mix. So the very existence of Hazel is a threat to both Reef and Landfall, which means that both sets of governments want all three members of this little family dead. Saga is the story of what happens to this family as they go on the run. The story of the people they meet and the things they do. And it is extraordinary. You will fall in love with so many of the regular characters and you will have your heart broken many, many times. Seriously, if you thought The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones were brutal in the way they killed much-loved characters off, Saga makes all of that seem like a child's picture book. No character is safe, except possibly Hazel, who does occasionally point out in her narrative that whenever she's facing peril that she must have survived because she's still here to tell us this. But apart from Hazel, no character is safe. So that's that's basically what it's about, and I've not made it sound nearly good enough. The scope of ambition and imagination in this story is just so huge. It really is impossible, I think, at this point, to explain what Saga is and make it sound as good as it is. It, it You just can't do it. So trust me, come on, go into any comic shop and have a look at what Saga is. Seriously. Saga is the work of two people. The artist Fiona Staples and the writer Brian K. Vaughan. And because, you know, producing a comic book on a monthly schedule is difficult, particularly for artists, because, you know, drawing comic art takes time. So what they used to do was they'd have more or less six months on, six months off, where there'd be a comic every month for a complete story arc. And then they'd take six months off so that they could get caught up. And then we'd go again. And then three years ago, they said they were putting the book on hiatus for about a year, maybe 18 months. And lo, there was great wailing and gnashing of teeth amongst fans of the story because we'd actually just come to a major, major event. At the end of Volume 9, something happens to one of the main characters, which was immensely shocking. And none of us wanted to wait 18 months to find out what happened next. Unfortunately, we didn't have to. We had to wait longer. Because... 18 months came and went. And OK, by then, we were in the middle of lockdowns and pandemics and all of that sh shenanigans. But 
Still no saga. Still no saga. We waited, and we waited, and we began to worry that it was never coming back. And then, at the end of last year, it was announced that it was coming out at the end of this month, and lo, here it is, I'm literally holding it in my hands as I'm recording. Saga 55. It picks up a couple of years after the events of Volume 9 of Saga, and we catch up with Hazel, who is now obviously a little bit older, and her family as they are on a planet which has no particular love for Reef or Landfall, and they're doing what they always do. They're hustling to try and survive. It's an immensely welcome return. The heart and soul of this book are still very much there. But I can tell you no more about the story because, seriously, I really want you to read this series. And you deserve, if you're going to read this series, to have every reveal and every revelation fresh. You do not want to be spoiled for this book. Uh, so, again, seriously, Google here is not your friend. Do not Google what happens in this story. Find a bookshop. Find a comic shop. I know a really good comic shop in Harrogate. Um, and pick up the first volume. Honestly, seriously, in the five years I've owned Destination Venus, Saga has always been the first book I've gone to when somebody comes in and says, what sort of thing can you recommend? And only in one, on one occasion, I've recommended it literally thousands of times, and only on one occasion has somebody come back and said, no, nah, I don't really like it. And their issue, I think, was with the bad language. I should put a, a warning on this. There is very graphic sexual content in this saga. There is very graphic violence, and it's very foul-mouthed. So if those things offend you, then yeah, saga is not for you. If they don't, and I should say, none of it is gratuitous. Everything is in service to the narrative. Um, so if if you, you can handle those kinds of things, it's a simply a book you must, must read. Not only is it just really good in its own right, it's also an excellent example of what the medium of comics can do. The, the scope and scale of things you can do in comics that you just can't do in any other medium. So that's another reason to love Saga. It, it, it shows you something about comics themselves. So yeah, I'm quite enthusiastic about the return of Saga. You've probably noticed. And I should say, before I go on to talk about something else, the other thing that Fiona Stables and Brian K. Vaughan have done is really take a stand against some of the gimmickry that you get in comics. It's common for what Marvel would call a landmark issue like this to be oversized and more expensive than normal. Staples and Vaughan have taken a stand against that. Uh, they have made the Issue 55 of Saga and every subsequent issue of Saga, $2.99, which is a whole dollar cheaper than everything Marvel puts out and everything that DC puts out, uh, most of which is $3.99, some of which is even $4.99. On top of that, they've added extra pages to this comeback issue uh, as a sort of here's a thank you for waiting so long kind of thing. That never happens in comics. They've also only put one cover on it. So, you know, completist fans don't feel the need to go out and buy six copies of the same thing. That doesn't happen in comics either. And as a retailer, I have to say, I really, really appreciate that. 
As a fan, I appreciate it even more. But Saga isn't the only comic out this week. There are two others I really want to talk about. We're going to go for a little bit of light relief first and talk about Mary Jane and the Black Cat. Now, if you're unfamiliar with these two characters, they are the two most important women in Spider-Man's life. Mary Jane Watson is a model and actress, and um, I'm not sure if she's currently the wife of Peter Parker. She has been the wife of Peter Parker, but, you know, stuff happens and realities change and that kind of thing. Uh, She is certainly with Peter Parker at the moment. Um, The Black Cat, Felicia Hardy, is basically the Marvel Universe's version of Catwoman. She's an accomplished thief and cat burglar and former love interest to Peter Parker. Now, good friend. Peter Parker is currently incapacitated for reasons we won't go into. Uh, And as he lies in his hospital bed, he's threatened by a villain who wants Felicia Hardy to retrieve something for him. If she does, he'll let Peter Parker live. If she doesn't get it by sunrise, Peter Parker will die. Um, That's basically the threat here. Um, And it's the the, the excuse, really, for Mary Jane and the Black Cat to go on a bit of a romp through the the New York underworld seeking this particular item. I'm trying really hard not to spoil this. Uh, It's a fetch quest. There's no particular reason for this story to exist, except that it's a huge amount of fun. Written by Jed McKay, illustrated by C.F. Villa, uh, coloured by Eric... Arseniega and lettered by Travis Lanham. This is just one heck of a night on the town. And it's just ridiculous, silly fun. And just sometimes it's nice to have a comic that does that. Out this week from Marvel Comics, it is £4.50 or $4.99 if you're working in US money, which is an example of what I was saying about Marvel in particular, always being happy to jack up the prices occasionally. It's a beautiful looking thing, though. The art is fantastic. Uh, it's got cover art by fan favourite artist J. Scott Campbell. And inter- the interior art is uh, is pretty lush, actually. So, you know, it's a nice thing. And then finally in this segment, we have the Batman Catwoman special. And there is a part of me that's mildly annoyed by this because it's got a Christmas tree on the front and some Christmas stockings. And it came out at the end of January. I can't help thinking it would have been better had this come out five weeks ago. But that is nitpicking and not the point. Because there's a reason this is such a special book. First of all, it's good. Let's get that out of the way. Written by Tom King, this is part of the wrapping up of the Batman story arc that Tom King started in Batman Rebirth issue one. What, five years ago now? Must be five years ago. Must be at least... Yeah, must be five years ago. Um, When he took over the the Batman series back in 2016, Tom King had a 100-issue story arc in mind. And he only actually got to issue 85 before, for various reasons, they needed to do something else with the Batman title. And King sort of stepped back from it. But DC obviously believed in his story because they gave him a Batman-Catwoman series to finish that arc off, because his arc was all about the relationship between Batman and Catwoman. This special fits into that story 
Uh, it tells the of the Christmases past and future for both Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle, Batman and Catwoman. And it, it's beautifully told. Uh, the way Tom King has rendered the relationship between Batman and Catwoman as star-crossed lovers who are completely incompatible, but also totally compatible and cannot resist each other, has been a revelation, actually. Catwoman's been a love interest for Batman before, but this time the relationship actually feels real. So there's that. And I'm a sucker for a love story, so, you know, there's that too. But this is, at least in part, illustrated by the artist Jean-Paul Leon, who, very sadly, um, we lost to cancer last year. Uh, the first 13 pages of the story are completely drawn by Jean-Paul Leon. After that, he's done the breakdowns and uh, other artists have finished his work. The whole thing has been intended as a tribute to John Paul Leon, who was a complete genius artist. I cannot begin to explain how important an artist John Paul Leon was. Um, he came from nowhere and took the world by storm. Uh, people who everyone considers to be geniuses considered John Paul Leon to be a genius. And this book has been very carefully put together uh, as a tribute to him. I suspect that's why it's as late as it is. And it's very clear that everyone involved has poured their heart and soul into it. So it's special for that reason too. But it is actually also a really good story. It's a sad story, but it's a really good story. So that's out this week. It's uh, in what DC used to call the prestige format. It's square bound with cardstock covers. Uh, written by Tom King, featuring art from Jean-Paul Leon, Bernard Chang, Sean Crystal, Miss Gerards, Dave Stewart, Clayton, uh, lettering by Clayton Powell. Um, it's, it's a thing of wonder and brilliance, and I think something that I will be reading every Christmas from now on. But anyway, that is it for comics recommendations for now. All available uh, this week from your local comic store, whoever and wherever that is. So moving on, but staying with comics, um, things have been happening this week in the world of working in comics, and there is an event that I simply cannot allow to pass unremarked. You will know, if you have listened to the show before, that Thought Bubble is a wonderful festival of comics and creativity that happens in Harrogate every year, sort of. It happened in 2019 and then had to take a year off. Um, but did come back in 2021. It will be back this year in 2022. And it has found a permanent home in Harrogate for the foreseeable future. Thought Bubble is effectively the brainchild of one person. Lots of people have worked on it. Lots of people have contributed to it. But Thought Bubble exists because of the Leeds-based artist Tula Lote, who, in conjunction with the Leeds-based chain of comic shops, Travelling Man, set up the first Thought Bubble Comics Festival in Leeds Town Hall. It must be, what, 16 years ago? Something like that. And she has guided Thought Bubble into what it is today, which is probably the biggest pure comics festival in the country. It's not as big as some of the big sort of what I would call geek shows, where they have, you know, film and TV stuff as well. Thought Bubble is just comics. And there really is nothing else 
really like it in the country. It's the most positive, the most brilliant weekend I have every single year. And uh, all of that is thanks to the vision of the artist Tula Lote, who announced uh, yesterday, uh, Wednesday the 26th, I'm recording this on the 27th of January, that she was now stepping back as director of Thought Bubble. Uh, I can't say I blame her. It's a huge, huge job. And she is still a professional working artist. I'm sure she's got other stuff to do. Um, she leaves Thought Bubble in very capable hands. I know a couple of the people who are stepping in to fill her shoes quite well. And I know that they are going to continue Lisa's work. But it, we, we just should just pause. And I would like to thank Tula Lote for not just creating Thought Bubble, but guiding it to the stage it got to and bringing it to my mad little hometown. Because the legacy that she leaves is incalculable in terms of the number of people that have been inspired and that will be inspired to create and tell stories and use their imaginations. It's it's an amazing thing she's done. And I just wanted to acknowledge that. And I think I also just want to mention somebody who is challenging comics culture in a slightly different way. Um, and I'd just like to give a bit of a tip of the hat and a bit of a shout out to Tom Taylor, who is an Australian writer who is currently writing the comic book Superman, Son of Kal-El. For those not keeping up, Superman is Clark Kent. He is married to Lois Lane, and they have a son called Jonathan Kent. Jonathan Kent also now goes by the name of Superman. He's in his late teens, because although he was only 10 years old a little while ago, some timey-wimey stuff happened, and he aged up. Now, Superman, Son of Kal-El, is a little controversial in some circles, because it turns out that Jonathan Kent is gay. Now, that led to headlines about Superman being gay and people not reading the article properly and get losing their minds, basically. And it really isn't and shouldn't be a big deal. The book itself is actually huge fun. Uh, Tom Taylor is a great writer. I, I really enjoy his stuff. He's got a real light style that works with characters like Jonathan Kent. But there is, of course, that section of fandom that doesn't like that sort of thing. And so Tom Taylor gets a huge amount of abuse on Twitter, which he often shares. And amongst all the nonsense about how somebody hated a particular issue of Superman so much that they went back to the comic shop and bought all the copies so they could burn them, uh, to which he said, thanks for the royalties, you get the occasional thing about how, because it's so, in heavy air quotes, woke, sales are plummeting, DC is in crisis, nobody's buying the book. To which Tom Taylor simply smiles and rather publicly points at the sales figures, which consistently have uh, Superman, Son of Kal-El, in the top 10. Now, because these idiots are the kind of people who think you can just make up facts, uh, obviously they dispute this, but seriously, there is no reason for DC to falsify the sales figures. If the book was not making them money, if it was not selling, they would can it. As I have said before, DC are not in business to make comics. They're in business to make money. And if they're not, the comics do not get made. So 
all of the many conspiracy theories are ridiculous, just ridiculous. What I really like about Tom Taylor's reaction is that whenever somebody sends him abuse that's particularly homophobic, he makes a donation in the name of the person who sent the tweet to an LGBTQ uh, charity in Australia. He doesn't argue. He doesn't get into a discussion. He just makes the donation and tells the person who sent the abuse that that's what he's done. So, bravo, Mr. Taylor. That's the way you deal with trolls. And we'll be coming back to some sort of comics-adjacent stuff later in the show uh, when we do the geeky news. But for now, it's time to see what's happening in... So, as has become traditional, although this might be one of the the last few of these updates, it is time to see what is going on with the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, it is orbiting its final destination, uh, the Lagrange Point 2. It has completely deployed. Uh, It's now going through sort of a cool down uh, period to make sure everything is cold enough to turn on the actual instruments and then they can do the testing and calibration of those instruments and get the telescope up and running. Um, Mirror alignment has begun and uh, it's all going still tremendously well. So it was a long road to get here, but we're here now and yeah, really genuinely, genuinely very optimistic now. Uh, All of the things that could have gone wrong probably would have gone wrong by now if they were going to. So it's just a question now of finishing the setup before we start getting some amazing data from the furthest reaches of the universe. It's genuinely just hugely exciting. So please do stay tuned and watch this space. We will keep you informed. So as the James Webb mission gets properly underway, it's time to look at a mission that is due to fly um, sometime soon-ish. And that is the rather excitingly named Biosentinel mission, which is actually less exciting than it sounds. Um, Sometime soon, uh, the Space Launch System will be sending the Artemis 1 mission around the moon. This will not be crewed. Uh, It will be a remotely operated mission. And it's basically testing the the Orion spacecraft that will be used to take the next generation of American astronauts to the moon. Now, that's a big rocket. And it's capable of putting up a whole load of other stuff into space. So BioSentinel is a very small little thing. Uh, It's regarded as a secondary payload for Artemis 1, and it's using yeast. And they're using yeast because yeast is a living thing. And it's been a while since we've had people in deep space. Uh, There's been nobody in deep space since 1972. Um, One common thing that the various astronauts who flew to and around the moon have in common is that quite a lot of them develop cancers. And that is potentially because there's quite a lot of radiation in deep space. So 
what BioSentinel is going to do is take some samples of yeast around the moon and basically see what happens. As ever, more information on this in the show notes. Uh, but this is, you know, a properly important bit of safety testing. If we can see what damage the radiation does to the yeast, we can then extrapolate that onto human cells and we can start working out how to protect people who are out there. Is it just a question of limiting exposure? Is there some kind of shielding that can be used? You know, what, what do we do? Because if we're going to be putting people into deep space, uh, by which I mean anywhere beyond low Earth orbit, orbit, so certainly around the moon. And that's the plan. I mean, the plan is to have a space station around the moon in the next few years. So even if that's not permanently crewed, it, you know, potentially will have people on there for quite a while. We need to know what the, the health effects will be. So this is the start of that. And speaking of the moon, it was revealed this week that Elon Musk is about to accidentally crash something into it. Actually, well, that's not really fair. Uh, basically, there was a Falcon 9 booster that was launched in 2015. Uh, it did complete its mission, uh, but it did not, having done that, have enough fuel to return to Earth and land in the way that the Falcon 9 normally does, in that really cool Thunderbirds way of landing on its tail. Um, and so it remained in space. Uh, well, astronomers now reckon uh, it's definitely going to hit the moon. Uh, and um, that will make it the first uncontrolled rocket collision with the moon, or at least the first we know about. Who knows how many things the Russians and the Chinese have accidentally crashed into it, but as far as we know, it's the first time that's ever happened. Now, it's not going to cause a big problem. It's not as though there's anything in the way it's going to hit. Um, but it does kind of demonstrate that you leave something in space, it doesn't just stay in orbit. Gravity works on things. Things move under the influence of gravity. And um, sooner or later, they end up hitting something. And we've talked before about how having stuff hitting other stuff in space can be a massive, massive problem. So in that sense, it's really good, actually, that this booster is going to hit the moon. Because once it's hit the moon, it can't do any more damage. It's out of orbit. It's out of space. And it's no longer a hazard to navigation. And as we put more and more stuff up there, hazards to navigation are going to be an increasing problem in space. So this is a non-story, really. Uh, it's a point of interest. Uh, but more on this, if you're interested in the show notes, there's an, an, a nice little article on the BBC that um, sort of explains exactly what's going on. And on that bombshell, that is it for the space news. And this is where I'd normally play the science jingle, but I'm not going to because I've only got really one story for you this week in geeky science, and it's not really science, it's engineering, and I don't have an engineering jingle. Um, if anybody out there wants to make me one, more than welcome. Bring it on. You may remember that back in the summer, we reported on one of the things that geeks have been wanting for decades, an actual working flying car, uh, the hybrid car aircraft air car, uh, which was being tested in Slovakia. Uh, I am very pleased to report that this week the air car has been issued with a certificate of airworthiness by the Slovak Transport Authority, which opens the way for the air car 
to um, go into production. It's a really cool thing. I actually genuinely don't think it has uh, any kind of future beyond niche. You need a full pilot's license to, to be able to have one of these things. Um, it's going to be pretty expensive, but it is quite efficient. And, you know, it might actually be a more useful thing to own than a regular plane. Uh, it's quite a cool looking car that has fold up wings and transforms from a car setting to an aircraft setting in less than three minutes. I think they're claiming two minutes and 15 seconds. Uh, and I know people who've got soft tops. It takes them longer than that to put the roof up. So, um, you know, that's actually quite impressive. It's only a two-seater, and I don't imagine it can carry all that much in terms of payload. But even so, we have wanted, as geeks, flying cars and jetpacks since the 1960s. And finally, finally, we're getting at least the possibility of a flying car. Now, as I say, I actually don't think the commercial um, applications of this stack up. I think we are going to get a flying personal transport revolution. Uh, I don't think it's going to look like a flying car, certainly not with wings. I think what's more likely to happen is we have uh, automatic or remotely piloted uh, sort of drone taxi type things that will fly into your street or your back garden or your driveway uh, and which you get in and then either the computer flies you to your destination or some remote pilot in air traffic control somewhere pilots you to your destination. I, I don't see that very many actual people are going to own their own flying car. I, I just don't see that that economically works. But still, we can but dream. Uh, links to, uh, again, another BBC uh, report on the air car, uh, just so that you can see the immensely cool thing that it is. And, you know, sometimes that's all you need it to be. Just a really cool thing. And it is genuinely an engineering triumph. So um, there's that too. And since we lack a jingle for this segment too, we will just bounce straight on into the general news from the world of geek. And I suppose the big news in the world of geek from where I am currently sitting is the fact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is currently in Yorkshire. Oh yeah. Uh, if you go to the show notes, uh, you can find links to pictures of Samuel L. Jackson, presumably reprising his role as Nick Fury, uh, filming in Leeds uh, for the Secret Invasion show. The uh, Marvel team has also been spotted at the Peace Hall in Huddersfield. Uh, and in both cases, uh, both Leeds and Huddersfield appear to be substituting for Russia. So uh, there's lots of Cyrillic signs and um, Russian number plates on cars and that kind of thing. It's not, of course, the first time that uh, parts of Britain have been used uh, in uh, superhero films. Uh, quite a lot of Batman has been shot in Glasgow, uh, which is doing a very good job of pretending to be Gotham City. Edinburgh appeared in um, Infinity War, although, to be fair, it was just pretending to be Edinburgh. And famously, Milton Keynes 
was used to stand in for Metropolis in the making of Superman 4. So by the time you listen to this, uh, if, it, if you're listening when it drops on Thursday, they're probably packing up to go home now. Uh, but Samuel L. Jackson has been seen around around town. He was seen in an Italian restaurant in Huddersfield, uh, where he was good enough to pose for some selfies. Uh, he seems like a nice guy, Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, and it's quite a cast they've got. Uh, there's Amelia Clark, there's Olivia Coleman. Uh, and if you're curious as to what uh, Leeds pretending to be Russia looks like, you'll be able to watch um, The Secret Invasion at some point later this year, uh, they seem to be saying, on um, Disney+. Plus. So yes, I am banging on about Disney+. Plus Again, sorry about that. Okay, so moving on into other geeky news. And this geeky news kind of overlaps a little bit into politics, and we are not a political show, but we are very big fans of Terry Pratchett. And honestly, Pratchett amongst many other things, was a political writer. Uh, he once described to his friend Neil Gaiman the way that many of his books were written and driven by the rage and the anger that he felt about certain subjects. And, you know, if you read the Discworld novels with um, even half an eye open, you can see that. You can see the points he's making. You can see the things he's angry about. And one of the things that has always stood out to me is a passage from the novel Men at Arms, in which Captain Vimes of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch contemplates unfairness in something that came to be known as the Vimes boot theory of socioeconomics. As with so many things, Pratchett, it is pure common sense and also deeply subversive and also a little bit funny. And it goes like this. The reason that the rich were so rich, Vimes reasoned, was because they managed to spend less money. Take Boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50. But an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. These were the kind of boots Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh-Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that would still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. This was the Captain Samuel Vimes' boots theory of socio-economic unfairness. That passage from Men at Arms is copyright by the Pratchett Estate. Used here for demonstration purposes and uh, no copyright infringement is intended. Because that theory is now in the news. Now, I first read that uh, back in the early 90s when the book was published. And I agreed with it then. And I still agree with it. I think it's absolutely true. Being poor is expensive. And... That's come into the news again this week because of the food poverty campaigner, Jack Monroe, who took issue with the rate of inflation that was being indicated by the Consumer Price Index. And honestly, if you don't think this is a geeky subject, we're talking about economics. It doesn't get any geekier than this. For those not geeky enough to have studied economics at A-level like what I did, the Consumer Price Index is basically an imaginary basket of goods that 
is monitored. And as prices rise, you can calculate how much more expensive the things in that basket, which is regarded as what an average shopper might be buying. And so you can work out what the rate of inflation is, how much more the cost of living is than it was. Now, the news this week in terms of inflation levels was not good. According to the Consumer Price Index, the CPI, because all geeks love a good initialism and all economists are geeks, inflation in this country right now is running at about 7%, which is the highest it's been for 30 years, and that is generally regarded as a bad thing. As I said, we're not a political show, and I make no judgment on that, except to point out that comics haven't gone up at all. So there's that. Even the most expensive Marvel extravagances are going to start looking like value for money if we keep going this way. Jack Monroe took issue with this, because she maintains that the basket of goods that the Consumer Price Index is using is not the basket of goods that the poorest people are buying. And as a demonstration, I'm not going to go back and look at her tweets. I'm just going to pull some things out from memory. So I may be slightly factually incorrect, but the point is accurate. She pointed out that the cheapest bags of rice used to be 50p and now they're 70p. That's more than 7% rise. That, you know, the cheap pastas more than maybe doubled in price. And that where prices have stayed the same per pack, the quantities in the pack have gotten smaller. So that still represents a price increase. And that therefore, 7% inflation might well be a problem. But if you live, she suggests, at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum, you are suffering inflation significantly higher than that. And of course, if you are at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum, you can ill afford to be suffering inflation at that kind of level. So what has this got to do with a show about geeky stuff? Well, as part of her ongoing campaign about food poverty and to challenge the validity of the CPI as a measure of inflation, Jack Monroe has launched her own price index um, and she is calling it the Vimes Boots Index. Uh, and the point of it is to document what she regards as the insidiously creeping prices of basic food products. Um, she does this with the full blessing of the writer Rihanna Pratchett, uh, Terry Pratchett's daughter, uh, and the Pratchett estate. Uh, Rihanna Pratchett is, has been very clear that she thinks her father would have been very proud to see his work used in this kind of way. And um, we will see how this pans out. Um, I think from an economics point of view, and I did study economics because I am a massive geek, um, I think. Monroe is actually right, at least insofar as one inflation rate does not fit everybody. Uh, we all have different shopping and spending habits. I, I think the idea that there is an average basket of goods is probably deeply flawed at best. And it's one of those things that economists do to simplify things. And the truth is, the world is not simple. So we will see what happens with the Vimes Boots Index. As a lifelong fan of Pratchett's work, um, I think I agree with, with Rihanna Pratchett, who has said, you know, and this again is a direct quote, my father used his anger about inequality, classism, xenophobia and bigotry to help power the moral core of his work. If you read Pratchett, as I say, with even half an eye open, that moral core is very clear. And 
regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, it's really hard to argue with Pratchett's view that inequality is bad. Now, does that count as the boring preachy part? Because honestly, I was just reporting something that had actually happened. I suppose there was some, yeah, okay. Let's chalk that up as the boring preachy part and we'll move on. And sadly, in geeky news, we are going to stay a little bit with politics, although this time politics on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, because something that I find baffling has happened and it doesn't look good for quite a lot of other things. Basically, what has happened is uh, a school board in Tennessee has voted to ban Art Spiegelman's graphic novel Mouse from schools. Um, now, they've done this banning a book which tells the story of how Art Spiegelman's father, Vladek, escaped from Auschwitz, or at least escaped from Nazi-occupied Poland. And they've done it in the week of Holocaust Memorial Day, which it just seems weird. Um, and I, I find it completely baffling. Mouse is a difficult read. Um, it's is a book that depicts Spiegelman interviewing his father, a, a Polish Jew, about his experiences as a Holocaust survivor. Um, it is quite cartoony in style, quite rough in style. Uh, the Jews are depicted as mice and the Nazis are depicted as cats. Uh, the Poles, who actually don't come out of the story particularly well, um, are depicted as pigs. And it's a difficult read. It, Vladek Spiegelman does not come across as a particularly sympathetic character. Uh, it's actually quite a fair book in that way. Um, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, this is not a book that is in some way, you know, sort of trash history. This book won the Pulitzer Prize. Well, now the McMinn County School Board has unanimously voted to ban mails from all its schools, um, citing uh, words like goddamn and use of naked pictures of, of women. Um, and I just I find the whole thing utterly baffling. Um, the board apparently has told the local newspaper that the fact that the book is about the Holocaust has nothing to do with it being banned. Um, it, it, it cites nudity and swearing and I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it seems disingenuous to me. I was a teacher for a long, long time and I maintain that Mouse is a book that should be in every school library. Yes, it contains nudity, um, but it's cartoon nudity. It's not graphic. It's not pornographic in any way. And yes, it includes some, I'm going to say, pretty mild bad language. It's a book about the Holocaust. Of course, there might have been a little bit of swearing in it. And honestly, if you've, if you've been in a school at any point in the last 30 years, there is no language in that book that you will not hear in the playground. So 
I, I've always found that objection to things in schools a, a little bit weird. And in any case, um, good luck finding a wholesome, family-friendly Holocaust book. There aren't any. It was a horrible thing, which we absolutely should 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 teach about. Um, Neil Gaiman, the well-known writer, uh, reacted to this. Uh, he tweeted, there's only one kind of people who would vote to ban mouse, whatever they're calling themselves these days. And I don't wish to cast aspersions upon people I have not met, but I can't think of any reason to be against children reading mouse um, unless you are sympathetic to the side of that conflict that are the villains in that book and i think i think i will stand by that comment and leave that there but it's very disappointing yes it's only one school board but this is the start it's very disappointing and uh, i will just end on the, the the broader point i don't think any book should be banned so Let's leave that there. It's just very saddening when these things happen. Uh, I am What I am going to do is encourage you to see what the fuss is about and get yourself a copy of Mouse and read it for yourself. That I am going to do. Uh, I, I know that several school libraries in Harrogate have it in. Uh, I'm absolutely certain you can get it from the Harrogate Library. And um, it is available from all good bookshops. OK, moving on. We're, we're nearly at the end now. You'll be pleased to know. Um, I was going to do a little thing about the Book of Boba Fett again, uh, as has become traditional over the last couple of weeks, but I'm not. And the reason that I'm not is um, I haven't seen this week's edition of the Book of Boba Fett. Um, it's entitled The Return of the Mandalorian, and I don't think that is a spoiler because at the end of last week's episode, there was a little teaser as um, Fennec Shan said you can always find muscle if you can pay for it and then there was a little blast of uh, the refrain from the mandalorian theme tune so clearly clearly we were all expecting to see uh, din jerin this week um i made the mistake of googling the book of boba fett uh, before i started recording this and got massively spoiled for what would have been a really cool reveal if uh, i hadn't done that so if you haven't seen this week's edition of the book of boba fett and you're planning to yeah, just be a little bit wary on social media today until you've had a chance to see it because um it's a cool thing and you don't want it spoiled i am going to say that there is in episode five a bit of a nod to the first of the prequel trilogy the phantom menace and uh, do you know what there was a time when that would really really have annoyed me and now it doesn't, because I've grown up a bit. And I now understand something fundamental about fandom, which is you don't have to like all of it. I mean, I've, I've banged on this drum before, but I was in my late 20s when The Phantom Menace came out. I was 11 years old when I went to see The Return of the Jedi at the cinema, and I'd been waiting for a new Star Wars movie since then. It was, in fact, The Phantom Menace, the first film I ever went to a midnight screening to see. I literally went to the first available screening I could possibly get to. And I was disappointed. And I was even more disappointed 
by Attack of the Clones. And, you know, slightly less disappointed, but still very disappointed by Revenge of the Sith. And for a while, I was very cross and quite dismissive of people who liked the prequel trilogy. And I regret that now, because what I should have realised is that the prequel trilogy was not made for me. The prequel trilogy was made for people who were 11 years old when the prequel trilogy came out. The original trilogy was made for me, just as the sequel trilogy was made for kids who were 11 years old when the sequel trilogy came out. And on that level, it doesn't actually matter whether I like them or not. Yes, I've been a fan of Star Wars all my life, but that doesn't give me exclusive rights to the property. And what I think fandom really needs to learn is that it's okay to like the bits of a franchise like Star Wars that you like and ignore the bits you don't. Because as these franchises get bigger, this is going to keep happening. They're going to make Batman for little kids. And I'm not going to like that because I'm not five. But they're also going to make Batman for adults. And I am going to like that. And it won't be suitable for five-year-olds. But somehow it's the older fans who complain violently when there's something they don't like. You never hear from five-year-olds saying that, you know, Robert Pattinson isn't really their Batman. So I absolutely celebrate the idea that something from the prequel trilogies, which I didn't like, might make its way into the Book of Boba Fett, which I do. It's cool. It's fine. We can do that. But that's all I'm saying on the matter, because the reveal as to what that reference to the prequel trilogy is, is very, very cool indeed. And I would prefer it if you got to see it for yourself without having been spoiled for it first. So, as I say, be careful out there with the social medias and the various geek reporting sites until you have seen episode five of the book of Boba Fett. Now, is there some telly that I can plug that isn't Disney Plus? Well, sadly, with the exception of Superman and Lois, um, which is available on the BBC iPlayer, I'm struggling to think of any. So I'm turning it over to you guys. If there is a geeky show that you think people should be watching that is on free to access television, please let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. I would love to hear about it because right now, if there is such a beast, I am completely unaware of it. So I look forward to hearing you on, on that subject and indeed any other. If there's anything you think you would like this show to cover, people you might like us to interview, um, stuff you might want us to talk about, hit us up, let us know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. That's the same address to use if you've got any comments, uh, pro or con, uh, anything you'd like to throw into the debate. If you've got an opinion about something that we've talked about, maybe you disagree with something that I've said. Maybe you agree completely with something that I've said. Again, love to hear from you. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. And of course, a quick plug for the Geek Community Notice Board, which again this week is empty. Nobody has told me about any geeky events. I am going to remind you that the Geek Pub Quiz will make its triumphant return to Major Tom Social uh, in February, which is not that far away now, just a couple of weeks' time. Uh, there will be links to uh, to both Major Tom Social and to the various Geek Pub Quiz social media sites 
in the show notes. So do check those out and uh, give the Geek Pub Quiz a bit of a follow on the social medias to stay up to date with all of that. And I am also going to give a quick shout out to the Secret Lair, which is the new home for all the Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing stuff that used to happen at the Geek Bar. The Geek Bar is on hiatus at the moment uh, as it searches for a new venue, but that does not mean that the fun had to stop. I will have links to the Secret Lair stuff uh, in uh, the show notes as well. And of course, if you have your own geeky business or geeky event, just tell me about it and I will tell everybody else. That's what the notice board is for. Once again, just in case you were scrambling for a pen the last time I read it out, just hit us up at info at destinationvenus.co.uk or shoot us a message. Uh, we're on Instagram as Destination Venus. We're on um, Twitter as Destination Ven One, and we're on Facebook at Destination Venus. So you know we're pretty easy to find. And that's about it for this week. Um, just one final thing before I go. If you were in Leeds or Huddersfield or elsewhere in Yorkshire when uh, any of the MCU stuff was being filmed over the last week and you have a story to tell or pictures to show, do get in touch. We'd love to see that. Um, maybe, you know, you might want to share some of your, your cool stories about meeting Samuel L. Jackson and getting a selfie uh, with the uh, listenership here. Uh, if you have a story to tell, again, I'm not going to repeat the email address again. You know what it is. We would love to hear from you. And actually, Mr. Jackson, if you happen to be listening, you're welcome on the show anytime. So we will be back next week. Uh, we should hopefully, hopefully have uh, an actual interview next week, possibly even two. Uh, I am working on getting those set up as we speak. So um, you never know you look. It might not just be me you're listening to next week. I'm quite excited about both of them. One is with a very talented UK-based comics creator. The other is, is with people that I've known for a huge amount of time and never met. We tried to set something up uh, back in October before uh, all the issues that I had in October kind of overtook us. And we may be able to finally get things sorted out properly. And that will be a fascinating interview with some incredibly talented comics people as soon as I can get it set up. They are in Texas, which makes things difficult with time delays and stuff. But there's nothing we can't overcome. So that's hopefully next week. We will see you then. Same time, same listening device, unless you choose to use a different one. All that remains for me to do is to point out that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media and is engineered by me in sunny Harrogate. Well, slightly overcast and a bit chilly Harrogate, if we're being completely honest right now. I do need very quickly just once again point out that the extract from Men at Arms is copyright, the Terry Pratchett estate, and used for the purposes of reportage. And you know, what the heck, we're also going to throw in a quick plug. All of Terry Pratchett's books are available at good bookshops. If you haven't read them, you probably should, because they're amazing. But that really is us for now. We'll be back next week. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Above all else, stay safe, stay sane, and stay geeky. Until the next time we gather around our devices and go geeking together. We'll see you soon. Take care.